we have come now to the fifth week in our series on the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, If you're new to this series, uh, the background is that in the first century, uh, Jesus spoke to the prophet John and said, I've got messages for seven of the churches in Asia Minor that I want you to give to them. And we've been looking at these letters and we've been asking ourselves, what do these letters mean for our church today? And this week's message is to the church in Sardis, and it's a sad one, because Jesus doesn't have good things to say to this church. Uh, That hasn't been the case for the other churches. Usually he leads with some really nice things about each church, right? He uh, praised the church in Ephesus for their hard work and faithfulness and for having good doctrine, believing the right things. Praised the church in Smyrna for faithfulness in the midst of persecution, Praise the church in Pergamum for a similar thing, remaining true to his name in persecution. Praise the church in Thyatira for their love, faith, service, and perseverance. But when it comes to Sardis, there's nothing. As a whole, the church at Sardis is actually only good at one thing, and it's not something that's worth being good at. And we're going to identify what that thing is. In a little bit. So if you want to follow along in the passage, turn to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Revelation 3, verse 1. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this beautiful fall morning. We thank you for the chance to look at your word together. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you want to teach us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be attentive to your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I'm going to to stop right here to make a clarification. You might be wondering, what are the seven spirits of God? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, The seven stars we talked about a few weeks ago, those represent the angels, the guardian angels of each of these seven churches. But what are the seven spirits? Well, I'm convinced that this is a way of referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Uh, The New Living Translation, I like the way that they, they put this. They say the sevenfold spirit. And you may know that in Hebrew, numbers often have symbolic significance. So the number seven is frequently associated with perfection. So when it says the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits, it's a way of saying the perfect spirit, which of course would be the Holy Spirit. And I bring that up for two reasons. One, because if you're like me, you read this and you say, what does that mean? And so if any of you are thinking that, I wanted to clarify that. But but the second reason I wanted to clarify it is because it's important to recognize that numbers in the book of Revelation don't always mean what you might think they would mean, right? Numbers often have a symbolic significance in this book. And that's not really going to come into play this week as we look at the rest of this passage. But as we get further into Revelation, it's going to become more significant, okay? So keep that in mind. All right, continuing on. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. 
But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, I said that the church at Sardis was good at one thing, and it's not really something that's worth being proud of. Did you catch what it is? They're really good at faking it. Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. People think this is a good church. Probably the other six churches in Asia Minor thought of this church, thought of the churches at Sardis as a good place. Uh, They may have even had a good reputation with the surrounding community, because you might have noticed there's nothing in here about persecution, right? So it appears that the surrounding community in Sardis either didn't care about this church or accepted them, thought they they were okay. So they had a good reputation, but they weren't really alive. They were putting in the effort to look like they were following Christ, but they weren't really following Christ. And it's very important for us to hear what this is saying here, because just because a church looks healthy on the exterior doesn't mean that it really is healthy. Just because a person looks healthy on the exterior doesn't mean that they're really healthy. And some churches and some people get really skilled at appearing alive, even though they're spiritually dead. The church at Sardis cared more about appearance than about reality. And what I want to talk about a little this morning is how easy it is for us to fall into this trap of caring more about appearance than about reality. I've already mentioned during this series that I've been reading this really interesting book by a social psychologist uh, by the name of Jonathan Haidt. Uh, The book is called The Righteous Mind. And one of the things that he talks about in in that book is how wired we are as human beings to care about what other people think about us. And here's some proof. So Haidt describes this experiment that was done back in the 1990s. And some researchers went to college students and they gave them a survey. And depending on how the students answered the survey, they had an opportunity to say whether they cared a lot about people's opinions of them or didn't care at all. And what the researchers did was they, they took two groups from the people who took the survey. They took the students who most said, I really care a lot about what people think of me, and the students who most said, I don't care at all. And they took them all, and then they did a follow-up experiment with them where they would take each individual student sit that student in a room, and then say, talk about yourself for five minutes into this microphone. And they would say, there is another student who is listening in another room to what you're saying. And every minute, they're going to give us a number on a scale from one to seven that indicates how much they want to hear more from you. So if you got a one, that meant the student in the other room isn't interested in hearing anything more that you have to say. If you got a seven, they're like, oh, they're really interested. They really want to get to know you better. Kind of a cruel experiment. I'm glad that you guys don't hold up numbers when I'm talking every morning. 
Uh, but of course, this was all rigged. There wasn't actually another student in another room listening. The researcher was the one who was arbitrarily providing the numbers. And he would randomly give some students an increasing set of numbers, you know, three, four, five, they're getting more and more interested in you. And then others would, would get descending numbers. And they had a way of determining, they had ways of measuring how much the student's self-esteem was being affected by what was happening. And guess what they discovered? They discovered that everybody was negatively affected when the numbers went down, everyone's self-esteem was negatively affected, and everyone's self-esteem was positively affected when they went up. It did not matter if beforehand they had said, I don't care what people think about me. So, this was the conclusion of their study. The sociometer operates at a non-conscious and pre-attentive level to scan the social environment for any and all indications that one's relational value is low or declining. My translation. <laughs> you care about what other people think about you before you're even aware that you care. You care about what other people think about you before you're even aware that you care. And that means that if you say, I don't care what other people think about me, chances are you really do care, even if you don't realize it. And maybe the reason that you say, I don't care what people think about me, is because that's what you want people to think about you. Hmm? <laughs> so my point is this, the vast majority of us are wired to care about what other people think of us. Now, that in itself is not some terrible thing. Uh, I think that's part of the way that God created us. In fact, the only way you can stop caring entirely is if you're a psychopath, and then you have a new set of problems. <laughs> but there is a danger that's inherent in this tendency that we have to care about others' opinion of us. And the danger is that who people think we are can become more important to us than who we actually are. Right? Who people think we are can become more important to us than who we actually are. And the word that we often use for this danger, of course, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy begins the moment that we care more about what people think than about who we actually are. And it appears that that's what had happened to the church in Sardis. Right? They were investing their energy in keeping up appearances. They were very good at keeping up appearances, but they weren't really following Christ. Who they actually were was something different from what they were presenting. And so Jesus says to them, and he says this to any of us who have fallen into this kind of hypocrisy, wake up! Wake up! And I think the choice of words there is very fitting because... I would say there is a sleepy quality to much hypocrisy, maybe to most hypocrisy. A lot of the time, it's not real blatant. It's not something that we're trying really you know, hard to, to rebel and, and have this disjunction between who we say we are and, and who we actually are. Um, it creeps up on us because we're not alert. As the, re as the researcher said, right, um, we we have a desire to maintain our, our reputation, and it starts on a pre-attentive, non-conscious level, right? Before we even think about it. 
which means we seek to preserve our reputation before we even consider whether we should have that reputation. So the only way that we can care more about who we are than who people think we are is if we are awake and alert, if we're vigilant uh, to this tendency that we have, because our natural tendency is just to slip into sleepy hypocrisy. So let's talk a little about what sleepy hypocrisy looks like. I'm going to suggest a few possibilities. And just so you know, as I say these, I am preaching to myself as well. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that I myself don't struggle with sleepy hypocrisy too. If I didn't, it would be much harder for me to come up with this list than it was. Sleepy hypocrisy. Sleepy hypocrisy looks like talking a lot about God, but never talking to God and never listening to God. You know, we can declare in our churches and in our statement of faith all we want, that God is real and that we believe that he is living and active and involved in the world and in our lives. But our words don't mean much of anything if we don't actually live as if that's true. And living as if that's true, part of that is going to involve talking to God and listening to God. It's going to, you know, involve prayer. It's going to involve opening our Bibles sometimes and practicing spiritual disciplines and learning about our faith. If we never do any of those things, we have fallen into sleepy hypocrisy. And Jesus says, wake up! Wake up, stop just going through the motions and performing for others, and wake up. I really believe that in order for our faith to be genuine and lasting, I mean, I hear a lot about people falling away from the faith. Maybe you have heard lately, every now and then, if if a Christian who is in any sort of celebrity role falls away from the faith, it's very public, right? It gets, the media talks about it a lot. People fall away sometimes. And in order for faith to be genuine and lasting, in order for it to withstand the trials of life, some of it has to be practiced when no one else is looking. Some of it has to be practiced when no one else is looking. Sleepy hypocrisy happens when all of our faith is only practiced when someone's looking. When it's all about reputation rather than reality. What else does sleepy hypocrisy look like? Sleepy hypocrisy looks like telling everybody that we'll pray for them, but never actually doing it. Uh, Now, I don't want to be too harsh about this. I'm sure most of us at some point have have said, I will pray for you, and then we've forgotten to do it. Um, I, I have done that myself, so I'm not trying to come down real hard on us about this. But when it becomes a habit, When we start saying, oh, I'll pray for you, and deep down we know, I'm not actually going to do that. That is sleepy hypocrisy, right? That's a problem. And if that's a habit we've developed, Jesus says, wake up. Now, as I was thinking about this this problem of, you know, when we say, I'll pray for you to each other, and uh, not following through, it occurred to me, there's really three possible solutions to this problem. The first solution is just not to tell people, I'll be praying for you. And, uh, you know, there's a sad side to that. (laughs) Uh, But at least it's honest, right? 
and, and there's some integrity in that. And if you say to somebody, or if you, if you hear somebody telling you about something, you think, I really should be praying about that, but you don't think, or you're not sure you actually will, and you choose not to say, I'll be praying for you, here's what you can do. If you then do pray for them, you can send them a quick text or an email and say, hey, I was remembering our conversation from the other day, and I felt led to pray for you, and I did. See, then you're being both genuine and encouraging, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that's... That's one possible solution. Another possible solution is to say, I'll be praying for you, and then actually do it. Not rocket science, right? That's solution number two. That's a hard one to do, especially if you're saying it to a lot of people. But what you have to be very intentional if you're actually going to do that. You, once you say that to somebody, you probably need to write it down into you know, a prayer journal or something like that so you actually follow through, right? So that's option number two. But then there's the third option, which I think might be the best one, which is just to say, can I pray for you right now? I realize that that might not be a possible answer in every situation, but it's especially possible when you're at church. Uh, I really love when I am walking through this space and I notice that there are some people praying for each other. I think it's good to have more of that. Um, it's good because it's, we encourage one another. Uh, we're authentic when we're doing it. We're actually, you know, praying together. And uh, it helps to guard us against sleepy hypocrisy, right? So I, I just encourage that. You know, if you're talking to each other and somebody says, oh, we're really struggling with this, you know, say, well, would it be okay if we just prayed right now about that? I think that's the kind of encouraging environment that, that a church should be. What else does sleepy hypocrisy look like? Sleepy hypocrisy looks like talking about the gospel in church, but failing to live out the gospel in our day-to-day -day relationships. When we're living out the gospel in our day-to-day -day relationships, we confess our sins to people that we've hurt. And we extend forgiveness when people hurt us. But when we're hypocritical, we love to sing songs about God's grace and mercy. But then in our relationships, we never confess our sins. We hold grudges against each other, against our, our spouse, our parents, our kids. And if that's the way we're living, Jesus says, wake up, wake up. Sleepy hypocrisy looks like going on a missions trip and caring more about how the pictures are going to make us look on social media uh, than about whether or not we really helped anybody. Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up. And then Jesus goes on to say, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. So Jesus' solution to sleepy hypocrisy is not too complicated, right? He gives four commands, strengthen what remains, remember, obey, and repent. So let's talk about these real quick. Strengthen what remains. In other words, if you have any genuine faith underneath your performance of faith, strengthen that. I really think that most sleepy 
religious hypocrites do have some genuine faith. Uh, if they didn't have any, they wouldn't feel pressure to pretend, right? There would be no pressure to do that. And Jesus says that even if we have just a mustard seed amount of faith, just a tiny, tiny little bit, that he can work with that, that he can do something great through that tiny little bit of faith. So whatever genuine faith you have, start focusing on building that up. Work with that. Stop focusing on performing for others and focus on attending to your relationship with God and building that up. Focus on who you are when nobody else is looking, when there's no one to perform for. Second, he tells us, remember. And remember what exactly? Remember what you have received and heard. In other words, remember your experiences of God. Remember the gospel. Remember the feelings and the joy that you had when you first came to know God and you first received this. One of the most important spiritual disciplines throughout the Bible is remembering. God's always telling his people to remember, and he gives them rituals to participate in in order to remember the things he's done, you know, feasts and Passover and that sort of thing. Why does he do that? He does that because he knows people are forgetful. We are forgetful. We need help remembering who God is and what he's done. And one important way that we remember is by doing what we're all doing right now, right? By gathering together for worship. And that's really important. I feel like I probably don't need to tell you guys that because you're here. Uh, but we do really need to remember how important gathering for worship is. I've heard people say things like, I've outgrown church. Now, I don't really need to be in a worship service anymore because I've heard it all. Well, number one, you probably haven't really heard it all. But even if you have, you still need help remembering. And I'm not just talking about remembering facts, although that's important. I'm talking about remembering experiences, remembering feelings. How do you remember reverence? How do you remember the feeling of holiness and awe? We have to be intentional about remembering these things. And the only way that we can really do that is through things like worship services, through scripture, through communion, through baptism. You know, these are the things, the means that God has provided to help us remember. And when we disconnect from these things, I think we get very forgetful very quickly. Third, Jesus tells us to obey. Remember what you've heard and put it into practice. And you know what? I really appreciate the simplicity of Jesus' command here. Obey. Because there's an assumption there that it is actually possible to obey. <laughs> um, now, I don't think Jesus is assuming that we can be perfect. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But generally speaking, walking in obedience is something that God gives his church the resources to do. Okay? Yes, we are flawed. Yes, we all continue to struggle with sin. We're, we tend to be good at emphasizing those truths. <laughs> but we shouldn't sell ourselves short. Right? We can choose to walk in obedience rather than in sleepy hypocrisy. Yes, we'll make mistakes, but but this is a choice that we can make. And then finally, Jesus says, repent. 
Now, what does that word mean, repent? Jesus uses it in the Gospels, too. And, you know, for some of us, this word has a very negative connotation because the primary place where we've heard it is uh, angry fundamentalist types wearing sandwich boards and yelling at strangers and, you know. So we have bad associations, right? But just because some people have given the word repent a bad reputation doesn't mean we should just forget about it. The word repent, it comes from the Greek word uh, metanoeo, and what it means is to change one's mind about one's behavior. At the heart of repentance is a change of mind. A few years ago, I had a series of conversations with a bunch of different people, and they left me feeling very discouraged. And I remember I was really, really down about it, and I wrote in my journal this sentence, sometimes it feels easier to move heaven and earth than to change anyone's mind about anything that actually matters. And what I was lamenting there, when you really get down to it, is how hard it is for people to repent, right? They don't usually say, oh, I guess I was wrong about that. I should probably change the way I think about that or change my behavior. The natural human inclination is always to just justify what we already think and throw out any information that comes our way that contradicts what we already think. You know, that's the natural way that we work. And that's unfortunate because sometimes we really do need to change our minds. Sometimes we really do need to repent. The people at, Star at Sardis, at this church, they needed to change their minds. They needed to realize that their faith had become a performance rather than a reality. They needed to repent. And if our faith has become more of a performance than a reality, we need to repent too. And Jesus gives kind of a scary warning here. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, what does that mean? Well, from the reading I did, most commentators don't think that Jesus is talking here about his second coming, the final judgment. What they think he's referring to here is a judgment before the final judgment. And you might say that, that what he's saying is he's talking, he's warning about consequences coming upon the church in the near future. Um, he's saying, if you continue this way, if you refuse to repent, if you continue to just perform for each other rather than actually follow me, then at some point, that is going to lead to consequences. At some point, you're not going to know exactly when the charade is going to be exposed. This actually reminds me a little bit of, um, you might be familiar with this, Mars Hill Church, former megachurch in the Seattle area that was led by a, a guy named uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll. Um, is anybody familiar with that church? Raise your hand if you know. Okay. Now, I believe that God did some great things through that church. It had thousands of members in the Seattle area. Uh, including many new converts, many people getting baptized and coming to faith. But Mars Hill Church had a problem. Among the leadership, there was an ongoing pattern of bullying and abusive behavior and unchristlike like leadership. 
And that continued without repentance for many years. And on the outside, Mars Hill Church looked like a very thriving community. It was huge, right? But at some point, that pattern of bullying and abusive behavior was exposed. It came to the light. And with that, Mars Hill Church dissolved. The consequences of unrepentant behavior came upon that church suddenly, like a thief in the night. And that's the sort of thing that Jesus is warning the church in Sardis of. If you don't repent, this church is going to die. Right? This lampstand is going to go dark. You won't be able to predict when exactly it's going to happen, but it will happen. If underneath this exterior there is spiritual deadness, eventually that's going to have consequences. So, almost done. How can we avoid being like Sardis? Well, the obvious answer is that we need to care more about what God thinks than what anybody else thinks, right? But that isn't necessarily a switch that we can just magically turn on. One way that I think we can move in that direction is by choosing to put our faith in practice in at least a few ways that no one else knows about. Okay? Ways that aren't observed by anybody uh, at church, ways that um, aren't broadcast on social media, things that are just between us and God. And then secondly, we might need an attitude readjustment. If you think that you might have fallen into sleepy hypocrisy, you might need a little bit of, of a reminder of what life with God can really be like. When you wake up in the morning, which you all do, uh, is your first thought, all right, I got to get to work? Or do you think something like, God, you've given me another day, and I don't know exactly what's ahead but I know that this day is filled with possibilities. And I want to be mindful of your spirit's voice as you lead me to bring the very best possibilities into reality in this day. You know, when was the last time that you had that kind of attitude when you started a day? I think that a lot of the time when we first come to faith, we have that kind of attitude. There's sort of like this this wonder and this magic to life where we think, man, anything's possible. God is with me. This day is filled with possibilities. Who knows where he's going to lead me? I'm excited. But we can forget, right? We can forget that experience and that attitude, that feeling. And we need to remember. And I'm confident that any church where the majority of its people wake up in the morning with that kind of attitude, that's a church that will be alive. And that's a church where people are going to care more about reality than about appearance. Right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if any of us are getting really sleepy, if any of us are caring more about what people think of us than who we actually are, I just pray that you would wake us up. Breathe your your spirit into us, Lord. Fill us with life. Fill us with wonder again. Give us a spirit of reverence and awe. 
Lord, help us to see each day as filled with possibility as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.